So we've made it to episode two. It's Dave Monday here, lead professional officer for mental health uh, for the health sector at Unite the Union. And today I'm joined by Stephen McKenna Lawson, who is a member of our Mental Health Nursing Journal editorial board. Hi Stephen. Hi Dave, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, it's a lovely day. We're at Hoban Towers, so the head office of Unite the Union got together to do some uh, pre-records today for the uh, podcast. Uh, but before we start going with today's kind of theme, can you just give a bit of background of who you are, your mental health nursing journey, and how you've ended up on the editorial board of Mental Health Nursing Journal? Sure. So it's actually quite fitting that we're doing the interview and the recording here because my journey, for lack of a better phrase, in the NHS started just behind this building at the National Hospital for Neurology. Okay. So I was studying at UCL and the girlfriend of a friend was volunteering with the multiple sclerosis clinical nurse specialists at the National Hospital and heard about a job as a support worker there that she thought I'd be good at because I really didn't know what I was going to do after I graduated. I had no idea. And I'd fallen out of love with doing very academic or just solely academic stuff. So I applied for this job, met the nurse consultant there, Bernie Porter, and for the next 16 months worked in neurology services of one kind or another. So initially as a support worker for the multiple sclerosis nurses on their patient-facing helpline, which was called NeuroDirect, or NeuroResponse, the name sort of changed a little bit. And then alongside that, for three months with Bernie, I got some funding from the UCLH charity to do a care navigator trial for patients who were calling that helpline with social problems rather than problems relating to their multiple sclerosis. So there was a, a young guy there about the same age as me who just become homeless. Um, as a result of his MS leading to difficulties at work and also breakup of a relationship, but it was a clinical helpline. The service didn't really have the means or the flex to address those issues. So we got a little bit of money. And it didn't really involve anything that complicated, but it was just we would write, would essentially advocate very strongly on behalf of those patients to organisations that could help them. So local housing, councils, local charities and employers. And after the three months, we were able to advocate for this guy and he actually became housed and got another job. And there was an older guy who was a refugee from, I think it was Iran, and he was having difficulties with his family. He had young kids and the quality of the social housing was terrible. So we were just advocating on his behalf saying that the stress caused by the housing situation was leading to relapses, which there's clinical arguments we made that that was the case. So that got me quite interested in doing more. I think that's where the wanting to be a clinician came from. I did a few other things, research job at the Queen's Square Research Centre and did some volunteering with Find and Treat, which is a outreach service based at 250 Euston Square inside UCLH who go out and screen people for TB. So they screen homeless people, they go to refugee centres, they go to substance use centres and they screen up to like 50, 60, 70 people sometimes in a day for TB for free. Mm. And I was there over the winter and so they also run out the back of their van a immunisation clinic. So people were getting flu vaccines and pneumococcal vaccines. And I was the sort of nurse assistant for the nurse doing those vaccines. And she was the first person who said, why aren't you being a nurse? why don't you want to be a nurse? And I just never thought about it before. And as soon as she said it, it was like an actual epiphany moment because it was all the jobs I'd done in the previous sort of nearly two years or just over a year and a half had been with nurses in services set up by nurses and in services exclusively staffed by nurses. And they were all quite innovative, interesting services. And they were directly involved with people and helping them. 
and they were like they were able to use all aspects of their of skill so like lots of thought was going into it as well as lots of practice and just like working with your hands so yeah it was like well obviously and mental health nursing specifically because that just seemed to fit my personality and using more communicative based skills like a non-technical skills just also attracted me so I applied for the postgraduate diploma at City was part of the last cohort to get that funded before the industry was taken away. Graduated last year and I'm about two weeks away from my first anniversary as a qualified nurse. Yeah, so obviously a year as a mental health nurse kind of sounds like an atypical kind of route into the profession if there's anything yeah. like a typical route. How's the first year been? <laughs> I guess it depends what day you ask me on. I've just left my second full-time position within a year which should give some indication that it's not gone exactly how I would have hoped. Um, it's been a very difficult year. I started off in psychiatric intensive care for men. Within that trust moved to uh, PQ for women and then I left there to a newer psychiatry ward but I've just decided to leave that and I'll be starting in CAMS tier 4 unit for 9 to 13 year olds in the next couple of weeks. So I've jumped around a lot and that's split opinion amongst my senior nurse colleagues. Some people have said you need to work somewhere you want to work and other people have said you need to stop moving jobs because it's going to damage your career prospects going forward. Um, I've moved because I've been the victim of numerous assaults as well as seeing aspects of nursing cultures that I just think would be detrimental to my practice if I'd stayed around there for too long as well as wanting to progress and there not being opportunities in order to progress so I'm trying to find that professional personal life balance and haven't been able to find it yet so it's actually been a bit, bit of an unsatisfactory first year but I am hopeful that things will improve and I suppose yeah. it's interesting listening to the first kind of like your journey into it kind of obviously one of the things that came out from that is that desire to innovate and do important work and I suppose that kind of comparison with then hitting a profession where if you're constrained to do that kind of how that feels and, and how to kind of square that circle and all that kind yeah. of stuff so uh, an interesting journey that's only kind of just at the start <laughs> yeah. if, if you can say journey maybe yeah yeah <laughs> I would just say as like advice to people who are about to become newly qualified the step up from student nurse to nurse is way bigger than the change to being a student nurse from whatever you're doing before. It's um, the level of responsibility doing the shift work like week in week out. It's a massive change and I don't think really there's enough support for people who are undergoing that that transition. It, yeah. is, it is still a bit like off you go. So I would advise people to just just take it easy when they get started if they can. And I know that's a message that we've given back in terms of the work that's happening with the NHS long-term plan in England that you know if you want to retain the best nurses then you have to support them not just in the early days but throughout the careers and I suppose it's worrying when you know national organisations maybe would want to just get as many kind of you know bums on seats to, mm -hmm. to get them through a process yeah. to get them qualified at the end and then us to lose those people quite yeah. quickly and from a kind of a, a personal kind of you know insight you often kind of see the people you think oh they will make really good nurses who seem to 
drift away quicker and you know again that kind of bit about I think that's that thing you said about not willing to to be involved in care that you feel is below the standard or the level that needs to be delivered and where that care is being delivered because of not having enough services then it's it's a real vicious circle yeah it's about you need to it's been difficult to oh what was interesting is that I left the, the intensive care services because it was very very scary job felt like a very dangerous job and that's maybe a conversation for a different different podcast than this one or a different episode than this one rather but what was interesting is that I left there feeling like I wasn't doing very much mm. that you were just reacting and the acuity of the distress of the individuals who were in those services you were just there feeling like really helpless and the environment didn't help the staff and it didn't really help the patients mm. there were very good staff and some good both clinically and in management who were like doing their best and were making like improvements, big improvements. You left at the end of the day just feeling like you hadn't really done anything. And then when I moved to neuropsychiatry, it was so much more specialist and demanded so much more of a knowledge base of you, which I liked, but I just then felt like I was losing my skills. Mm. I hadn't realized until I left PQ that I'd actually picked up quite a lot of skills, particularly in de-escalation, in in managing a shift, in allocating, in coordinating, in being a nurse in charge, because as soon as you qualified, you were a nurse in charge. So moving to that environment where you actually, or at least it felt like responsibilities were quite stripped back because they wanted you to build up a knowledge base. I found that quite difficult because I was used to just going at 120 miles an hour and suddenly I wasn't doing that. So everyone's different, but I, I think I need a little bit of responsibility as well as being challenged to learn more as well as having some support to like re- actually reflect and get some supervision around, well, what is it that you want out of the job? What is it that you like? What is it that you're struggling with? And how can you be changed, but also how can you help us change what you feel like we need to? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other question that we've not covered is about how you ended up on the Mental Health Nursing Journal editorial board. Well, because of you really, in about two weeks time, two days and two weeks is the 25th ed- version edition of the Royal College of Nursing's International Mental Health Nurse Research Conference, which is being held in London this year. Two years ago, me and a close friend who I met whilst we were studying to be nurses, Sam uh, Richardson Velmans, we decided that we were a little bit dissatisfied. There's a theme coming through here in my answers with our nursing curriculum in terms of some of the more theoretical aspects. So we decided to write a paper, or uh, we decided to write a submission for the 23rd edition of that conference, which was being held in Cardiff. And it was, we tried to make a distinction between person-centred care, which is like the paradigm within which services seem to want to operate alongside recovery, and person-centred caring. And what we tried to do was look at how, we looked at it sort of linguistically as well as philosophically. So person-centred care is like a brand, or it's a, it's a noun, and person-centred caring is actually a process, it's a thing that people do. So we were interested in looking at, from a sort of phenomenological perspective, how nurses embody care and what embodied care looks like and therefore what caring looks like that's more what we're interested in because person-centered care doesn't really mean anything Mm. if you actually sort of it doesn't really mean anything it's like you go from making sure patients are safe to having a patient safety officer but does a patient safety officer actually have any impact on keeping patients safe or keeping patients safe looks like is x y and z and we gave that presentation it went really well we got accepted wrote it up a bit mad mad dash bit we were very surprised but very happy at the same time. We wrote it up, presented it, it seemed to go down really well and 
there was a lady in the audience called Beth Cumber, who was a student in Birmingham. She had a poster there for some research that she'd done. And she invited us to speak at the Future of Mental Health Nursing Conference in Birmingham in October 2017, where we gave the same presentation with a bit of an expansion based around some of the stuff we'd seen at that conference, particularly from Dr. Jay Watson, the trauma-informed care model and, and way of thinking, which hadn't again come into our curriculum, but massively influenced us and we found very, very impactful. And you were in the audience for that one in Birmingham and you asked some really good questions and then you got in touch with us after and asked if we were interested to publish in the journal, which we hadn't heard of, which we were very happy to do. We did a student voices, I think it was. And then you asked me a couple months later if I wanted to join the journal. I was more than happy to do so. And I've been happy to be part of it ever since, sort of summer 2018. So yeah, that's how I'm here now. And this could be the longest preamble of any episode that we <laughs> yeah, People can just skip it on yeah, their button. Yeah, absolutely, they can yeah. listen to it at double speed. Yeah. So, uh, but that leads us on to the kind of the discussions that we had about setting up a podcast. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's something that I've thought about doing for a while, uh, just because uh, in my profession of uh, health visiting, uh, a couple of colleagues, uh, Amy and Jenny, set up a health visiting podcast and kind of thinking that that was really interesting and something that I kind of wanted mm. to be supportive of and, and help them to, to do that. Uh, but then also in terms of all the other things that I'm involved at, at Unite, uh, you know, we've kind of tried to be kind of trailblazing in terms mm. of making available information for not just members, for anyone, mm -hmm. uh, free of charge, you know, easily accessible. We kind of know about the problems with modern day practice of, you know, it's not like the good old halcyon days where you could have lots of time for study leave and, uh, you know, there's lots of time to sit around and read. These days may have never existed, but, you know, yeah. certainly not those days now. And just wanting to kind of think of a, an, another way of kind of, I don't know if delivering information is the right word or getting information out there, but also because of my own enjoyment of listening to podcasts that I think that they are a really nice way of consuming information. Just on the tube here this morning, mm -hmm. uh, I listened to a few of the Guardian Politics right. daily podcasts, which I think are really, really good. Mm -hmm. uh, another one that I really enjoy listening to is With Me Now, which is okay. about uh, park running. Uh, okay, and yeah. again, it's that, it's that kind of interesting uh, combination of things where it is very much a podcast based on uh, running and doing park runs every week. Mm -hmm. And yet, I'd probably say out of you know two in every four podcasts, there's some discussion about mental health, oh, about you know okay. either the positives brought about from running or the kind of the the life problems that everyone has, uh, and the two people that present quite often talk about their own mental health quite openly, and it's just really nice to kind of hear that because it it does normalise the kind of conversations that we need to have. Uh, and I just think it's, you know, for me, podcasts have been kind of another way of doing that, even outside of the kind of the, the subject of mental health. Yeah. So we had that conversation mm -hmm. kind of about setting something up and kind of this is it. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to say any more kind of about that. Well, it's, it was one of those things where when we actually put the idea out there, it seemed really obvious that we should do it. It was like, oh, yeah, obviously, which I think some of the best ideas should have that reaction where it's like, oh, maybe we actually should have done this earlier. Um, and you deserve credit for actually getting it off the ground, <laughs> like you do we with most. Did it. <laughs> like you do with most things. I, I have a problem doing that. I have an idea, and then it just disappears. But there's lots of things I like about podcasts. 
I think we're sort of beyond the podcast revolution now culturally. I think it's just norm. It's just a norm. Yeah. Almost everybody listens to them, if not tries to create some content themselves, which I think is great. But you can find anything on in podcast form. So I listen to lots of different types of podcasts, football all the way through to politics, to f- sometimes food, like music, lots of different things. And you can find exactly what you want. But what they also allow for, which I think reading at least articles on your phone doesn't really allow for and watching news and, uh, and consuming media in other ways doesn't allow for is you can listen to a back and forth and podcasts allow for an exploration of nuance both by the people who are producing the content and the people who are consuming it and if the audience engages with the people doing it on in through social media for example then the conversation keeps going and I just find that really I find that very beneficial. I think it's good that people can talk and then be listened to and then be talked back to and the conversation just gets a bit more nuanced. Things get explored properly and we're not just like, you know, quick just saying sound bites and just maybe you get it wrong the first time you say something, but when you get a question back in you rephrase it and then it comes out better and I like that. So I'm drawn to sort of longer form yeah. podcasts, as you can tell by my answers to yes, questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. one will be one. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny that you've mentioned Nuance twice, that another podcast that I've been listening to recently that's just finished its first series is Fact or Bull from Natasha Devon okay. and Dr. Keon West. And they kind of pick a subject every week and debate and discuss it and one of their key words is trying to get the nuance into mm-hmm. the debate and discussion so again it's an interesting it's a, it's a useful yeah. way of doing that isn't it yeah. and we're both here doing this episode with very similar interests but we don't listen to the same podcast yeah. so unless I've now convinced you to listen to that oh yeah sure definitely yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah you don't sound too convinced <laughs> <laughs> so anyway talking I know one of the things that you often say to me as well is there's a real importance to having good sound quality in podcasts Mm -hmm. and that's quite a useful segue because if you've listened to the first edition you will have heard in our interview with Courtney and Michaela from the Bethlehem Gallery that there was a clicking on the sound and that was because we had a table that liked to click every time we touched it. We're trying to not do that now but it's still on the interview that that you're going to hear. But just before we hand over to that recording which was of Courtney, Michaela, myself and Nikki Lambert who is also on the editorial board and introduced herself in the last episode. I just wanted us to have a quick think and look through the uh, special editions that we've done for our mental health nursing journal on our therapy and mental health. Have you got any highlights that you wanted to share? I do. So the, the obvious one is the comics. There's a serialisation from, uh, is it Doctor or Professor Grant King? I'm not sure what his title is these days. I'm not sure. Is he Doctor? I feel very bad that I don't know now. Him, his mental health nursing students and a professor of comics, which Mike Ramsey, one of our colleagues on the journal, assures us is the only professorship of comics in Europe. In the world. In I the think. world. I think the world. so. And they're very they're obviously just very short, four or five pages each. And they're around the topic of suicide. And Grant's adamant in his very short description in the first special that it's a difficult thing to talk about. It's a difficult thing to just express sort of in any form. But these comics do it. And the two, both of them so far, I found quite impactful because, I mean, on one level, maybe because the sort of characters in them are male and male nurses, 
and male nurses still only about 10% I think of the nursing workforce so seeing that maybe it has influenced me on some level but I can relate to both of the experiences so the difference between what appears in a nursing note and what a patient has experienced mm. can be absolutely massive and that first comic I think is absolutely brutal in exposing that difference how you can just say the patient doesn't cause any concerns or patient appears stable but if you not talk to that person if you actually engage with that person then those words are utterly meaningless yeah. and actually sometimes what doesn't appear in a nursing note is actually what's more important so the second nurse who goes in and just introduces himself the comic shows that's actually what has a therapeutic impact not the notes yeah and then in the second one is actually about the disillusionment of a, of a nurse and how difficult the job can be when you have aspirations to just help people and it sounds a bit cheesy and a bit trite but you do just want to try and help people you do want to do what's best for other people but you do get ground down in that process and you can be, go to some quite dark places yourself so I think in only about four or five pages each they've really articulated some quite difficult stuff and the quality of the images the storyboards everything is just to be to be lauded I think so very we're very glad to have those part of our of our journals yeah I think. and so that's the first two uh, bits of the comic the next two are going to be in the next two editions yeah of I can't wait to see mental health can't wait to see them when they come out just to say uh, if you want to know more about that uh, Grant actually spoke at our Scottish conference last year and we've got a recording of that speech that he delivered uh, and it's available on our Facebook page so we'll put a link to that in the show notes any other things that jumped out in the, the last two editions yeah I don't want to keep chatting your ear off before we get into our second part of our interview it was recorded with you and Nikki before but the two that I'd like to draw attention to are the first one titled Edward Adamson and the history of art therapy from the end of the first special edition on art I didn't know anything about this collection and I think the asylums are still under historicized considering that there are mental health nurses who are either still working in the profession or are teaching new nurses who used to work in asylums. I think the legacy of that has just not been explored and also just isn't known by the new generation of nurses. So the fact that there was this guy, Edward Adamson, who over the course of three and a half decades produced close to 100,000 pieces of work with patients, would you call them patients, with inmates? Or hmm. I don't know what the word would be. Yeah. People excluded from society in the asylums and like 90% of it's been lost, but around 5,000 remain and they're just they're incredible just to look at the images, but the story as well is just very heartwarming. I think he describes himself as somewhere in between clinical staff and the patients in themselves, mm. this guy who yeah. just, uh, who essentially created the institution of art therapy. Because yeah. goes, it goes on to be formalized as a result of his legacy as a profession. So that's really interesting. Mm. And I'd want to track down that exhibition if it's ever on. That would sure it'd be really, really interesting to see. And then in the second special, the, another short article by Kim Noble about their dissociative identity disorder. So an individual with, I'm not going to do it justice, you'd read the article to get the best description of it, but a certain type of experience where there are multiple identities and quite a strong barrier between each identity, but over time more and more of those identities have begun to produce art independently. And you can see three examples that would look like they're produced by three different individuals, which in a sense they have because they've been produced by three different identities. But I think 
the one takeaway that I would get from it is in the first paragraph where that quite scary sounding label, dissociative identity disorder or DID, is articulated with the sentence, a creative way to cope with unbearable pain, which I think is just a fantastic way to talk about distress in like a non-medical way. So I got a lot out of reading that article too. But to emphasize the art, I think the quality of the art on display is also high. So on that point, we're now going to hand over to uh, Michaela and Courtney uh, at the Bethlehem Gallery. Uh, and this is the second part of the interview that we did with them a few weeks ago. A couple of times we've mentioned the, the sort of phrase outsider artist, which is a continuation of a conversation we previously had, which we shouldn't do in a podcast, I know. Would you mind just, just saying... What, what, do you, what, what we all mean, what we're all talking about when we're saying outside art, because some people might not know. And also, you were saying some really interesting things about what does it mean to be considered as an outsider artist, and you have some resistance towards that. Um, so, my first, my first experience of outsider art was uh, Museum of the Mind in, in the Netherlands, uh, and uh, they had uh, uh, got this outsider art and they had approached me, they'd seen some of the, some of the, the art that uh, I, I produced and they liked it and they wanted it to be part of their organisation. And uh, so that was the first time I came across the term outsider art, but then I found it a little bit uh, unsettling because uh, so being an inpatient who's trying to move into the wider community and be part of the wider community. So for a long time I felt on the uh, on the, the periphery of it all and I felt a bit like an outsider uh, and then outsider art and I don't want my art to be outsider. I want, I, you know, I want to be, I want to, it's like it wasn't be taken seriously or it's a different thing or it's, and it just, it, so just the language, the language just uh, felt a little bit unsettling for me. But, uh, I think, yeah, that, you know, that's something very much that, you know, I think we've always struggled with because if you think of the label of outsider art, who's using that? Who deploys that label? Yeah. It's not the artist, it's the collector or the museum professional that kind of identifies the work as outsider art. So once again, going back to that initial discussion about who has the power and the agency and the control, mm -hmm. if an artist chooses to self-identify as an outsider artist, as a kind of a way of positioning themselves in the mm -hmm. wider world, that might be useful, but it's not up to collectors, museum professionals, clinicians to point a finger and label a work outsider art. Mm. Um, so that's the struggle that we have. And obviously the historic outsider art collections, like the Prince Horn collection, uh, for example, um, have always been by non-outsiders, <laughs> you know, eminent insiders in the art world, um, choosing works for their collection. And very often the artists' names are not given, you know, mm -hmm. they're anonymous, they're unknown, which allows the collection to, the collector to determine the value and the scope and the and the nature of the work. So that's something that the we as a gallery I think would be really uncomfortable with unless the artist, him or herself, chooses to self-identify as a marginalised artic artist mm -hmm. as a mm -hmm. aesthetic or political act, which can some artists do. So are all artists outsiders then? That's quite a romantic <laughs> conception, isn't it? I think that you know that the idea that kind of you know artists exist outside yeah. society to comment and critique upon it. But yeah. I, I, don't, I, you know, I think that's very much an idea from the nineteenth century yeah. that then kind of 
you know, was yeah. utilised, you know, um, by kind of collectors because it's convenient, isn't it? This idea of marginalising practices because it allows you then to be the person who has the power to <laughs> allocate value. <laughs> Uh, from the outside. Um, so can anyone be an artist then? I think anyone can be an artist. I really do. I think anyone, you know, yeah, I don't see what there are, I don't think there are kind of restrictions and limitations to, you know, somebody, uh, you know, I know there are artists who have never been to an art school and, uh, you know, became quite prominent artists. So I don't think, I think anyone can, can be, yeah. You know, I'm not formally trained. I've not received any kind of formal education, art education or training. And I just do uh, move colours around and shapes around and I enjoy that, you know. I've, uh, and people appreciate that. They haven't said, oh, did you go to art college? And, you know, nobody's asking me about that. They're asking me about, uh, you know, the colours I use mm. and the, the form I use. Mm. And, you know, that's what they're asking me. So, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, anyone can if you're, you're committed to it and you, you know, set your mind to it and just do it take a chance you know that's uh, i think that's 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 what i've done just take take a chance mm. and uh, in the past I've, I've been a little bit scared of taking chances because i couldn't predict the mm. outcomes or didn't know where it was going and mm. i needed kind of certainty and um a bit kind of but so so my just be a bit freer and take a chance and just see what happens and you might be, you surprise mm. yourself and you know and that's what I've done and I had surprised myself you know so I think yeah anyone can. I was talking to some students a little while ago and I was like, do you, would you describe yourself as artistic? Maybe one out of sixty said yes. Why do you think that is? Primary school. Oh, what do you mean? Lots <laughs> of people kind of say, oh, I'm like had this horrible te art teacher oh. who said I was rubbish at art. I mean, the, the amount of times yeah. I've heard that in the, in the art studio. And then, you know, as a child, you're kind of... And then you give up. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah, you <laughs> you know, just give up. You know, um... I, I do think there's that bit in there about how valuable society mm. kind of makes art. Mm. And that kind of bit about, if I sat with the same equipment that you had, I wouldn't be able to produce that. So would the thing that I'd be able to produce have a value? And maybe aesthetically it wouldn't, but maybe to me it would, because it's my energy, my effort, my kind of experience and the time that I've spent doing it. But I think there's that bit about we don't kind of, uh, we don't reward that, do we? We don't kind of see value in that if you produce a picture and it looks a bit rubbish to yeah, and know, the wider society. And also, kind of, although kind of, you know, um, it depends what what skills you're valuing. Mm -hmm. So you can have the, like basic manual skills, and obviously looking at a drawing by Courtney, you can see mm -hmm. there are obviously kind of like you know certain kinds of skills that traditionally we value as art. Yeah. But I would equally say Courtney is an artist because of his capacity to articulate his thoughts, to engage mm -hmm. um, with different kinds of people, his willingness, his kind of courage um, in social situations. Um, and that's also about, that's also a certain, that's a way of being an artist. So it's not just limited to kind of like manual skills that kind of we're tested at, you know, in primary school or beyond. It's, there, are, there are skills in relating that some artists have more than others, but that's equally part of being an artist. It's choosing to use the medium of art and yourself as an artist to relate to other people. 
And I think I have a curiosity. So, yeah. like you say, I mean, if I showed you the pen and I told you a little bit about the pen and we went through some of that, so you had some a little bit of guidance, and and I think and I think that would that would also encourage encourage you to maybe see a difference. Oh, so we can do that, and we can do. Do you know what I mean? I think if you had uh, a little bit of guidance and yeah, and just and somebody did it with me. You know, somebody kind of introduced me to it, and uh, I thought, wow. So I think it's also just having a little bit of kind of curiosity and and uh, wanting to explore that, and I, and I do. I have a, a curious mind, and I, I like to kind of uh, just yeah play around with those things. But I think if I showed somebody, I said, look at this, now this is what you can do, and just I think there's that childlike quality in us that yeah. you know colors do things to people and shapes and messing mm-hmm. around and just and you know, you know. There's something about play, isn't there as well? Do you know I me? Mean? When you're faced with a white piece of paper, it's so scary. What if, you, what if you make a mistake? One of the things I think you, when you were talking about bravery that I see very much from your work is it happens by you being curious and by you putting yourself out there a little bit. It is. It is. You know, I would imagine you know novelists when they put that you know, well, they not talk like you know, still not. But putting that first that first couple of words on the screen would be. Uh, you know, it's, it's challenging and scaring, and I've got to fill a space with, with 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 something. And I've thought about this idea, and sometimes you know it doesn't translate. The idea I have in my mind doesn't translate quite so well on the paper, and and mm. I've got a lot of paper that uh, where I've seen ideas have not really translated as well as I thought. Uh, it is, yeah, it is. It, it certainly is. It is challenging. You know, uh, it's scary. It is a scary. It is a scary journey. You know, it's not. Yeah. It's not all just joy. Yeah. But when I start, when I've committed to, to doing something, because yeah. I have a relationship with it, and uh, so I've had a relationship with that, with the drawing, and I have a, you know, I hope to have a, a good relationship with the viewer. And so when people spectate and they, they look at, the, uh, I want that relationship as well to kind of connect. I want you know the image that they are produced and and the uh, your expectation of it or you, your your pleasure. And mm. I want it to connect. I want to make you know. Your own sense of it. I don't. You don't need added interpretation. You, you when you see something, uh, you'll have your own set of ideas and, and feelings about that. Yeah, and I think kind of that kind of confidence is very much um, in contrast to a, a, a lot of the time. I think I encounter when I used to kind of work in the um, art studios here is people's perfectionism, which is mm. extraordinarily kind of like self-defeating. And whereas that's perhaps much more visible. I hadn't encountered it quite so much uh, before working in a psychiatric hospital within an art studio, within a psychiatric hospital. But that kind of tendency of people that initially really distressed me, where mm. somebody will make something that doesn't work out how they wanted it to, and then they'll literally just kind of screw it up and throw it in the bin. And that seemed to be kind of rampant in the whole of society yeah. now. It's not just kind of in people mm. who end up in... Uh, treatment in a psychiatric hospital but that desire that perfectionism that self-defeating self-limiting almost kind of like verging on self-hatred sometimes you know stops people from being expansive connecting with others allowing themselves a moment of pleasure you know (laughs) or to play is um, significant but in a broader sense within society I think a lot of my a lot of the drawings the other drawings that I've got are kind of exact almost you know uh, kind mm. of, I wanted them to be perfect because of my I, I guess it was an element of anxiety but I mm. 
this was this was far more freer. So all these little lines uh, that was that was challenging for me, you know, just because when I've taken digital folk photographs of this, those are all gone. So, and even like the the lines, you know, on on a lot of other drawings, or there are no kind of going out of the line or any, you know. So when I was doing this. Uh, it was playing around with some of those anxieties that I have and that it was okay just to kind of just do that. You know, you didn't have to have a straight line or you didn't have to have, you know, uh, white edges and clear and, you know, even like this is mm. not kind of... Mm. And that was kind of just, just challenging myself, you know, and... Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's strange, that kind of that fear of judgment <laughs> that kind of enters into kind of both looking at art and making art. Mm. Um, you know, fear of being judged not up to the task of mm. understanding the work, being, mm. you know, being afraid of not being able to produce something that mm. looks the way you want it to look like. Um, and I think there have been parts of like uh, maybe my experiences in mental health where, you know, I have been judged because. I have a, a mental health condition or, you know, mm. um, or, you know, early experiences in childhood where you've been judged and, and criticised and, you know, uh, I think some of those things stay with you and they cling to you. Um, and so, you know, uh, as an adult, being able to kind of free myself with, with some of that and not feel burdened by it has been this cathartic, you know, was, uh, and that, and, and those, in that respect, it's art therapy. And I've been able to kind of uh, put things to rest. I know Nikki before asked the question about, do you think anyone can do art? So that next kind of question is, do you think would doing art always help with recovery? Uh, <laughs> always help with recovery. Boy, it's, uh, that, that would be really that would be really tricky. I've found it uh, helpful in my recovery. Uh, I'm not sure whether or not everyone would find it as helpful. Um, I think that's really tricky. I don't think there's, yeah, I don't think it's so cut and dry that the answer is like yes or no. I think it's, yeah, for me, it, it, it certainly helped me. Yeah, it, it certainly helped me. And a lot of people that I've seen in, in hospitals who go to, uh, to go to occupational therapies and, and participate in art and, I've seen people kind of getting really just stuck in, and so from what I've seen, it has it, helped people. It's, it's been a real help, yeah. I, I think kind of for me, it's just rather than it's, it's it's like how does the art space potentially help people to kind of um, get better? What that whatever that means. I mean, I'm uncomfortable with the term recovery as well yeah. because very often you know. You know working in this kind of environment, you see it's kind of a bit like a revolving door, isn't it? So people kind of get better in a certain way for a short amount of time and then come back for treatment. So it's not a kind of this linear trajectory where, you know, <laughs> you become, mm. you know, take off. Yeah, <laughs> and suddenly, then suddenly you're better. And I think, you know, kind of, it, what strikes me is this, the space for making art, this, the art space, whatever that means, just allows people just to, sometimes perhaps they rediscover an interest that they'd lost uh, a long time ago, they develop new interests perhaps, you know, kind of in, in, in making art, they uh, can socialise in a different way that's not available to them in other parts of their life, um, so they can kind of 
there's a there's an there's a, a sort of an expansiveness about the art space that just allows people to experiment with different aspects of themselves or different mm. identities and think mm. you know what would happen if I am a sort of person who mm. makes kind of. So, so is it fair to say then what you're saying is that art can help with the fact that it isn't linear that it kind of makes it more copable that mm. you do kind of cycle around. That's a really good. That's something that I haven't really thought about, but I know that it's. Well, you know, I'm, I'm assuming all of our experience, you know, mm. either as kind of, you know, professionals within kind of mental health or people who use mental health services, is that you have to accept that, you know, it is, it's not linear, it is kind of cyclical, but that's how we are as human beings, mm. isn't it? And so art can be, can be a coping mechanism or can be a kind of like a reminder of something that you just kind of keep on ticking away that can just give you another... Capacity, another space, another kind of like headspace where something else can be explored. Um, I love that idea. I think mm. as what one of the things is, you know, recovery from what, yeah. you know, because we're all yeah. we're not going to recover from being people, are we? We're not going to no. recover from being humans. Yeah. So there, there was something around, you know, when I've had periods of grief or loss or sickness, yeah. things like that, is you suddenly have to think. It can be quite isolating. So for me, art has been something that helped me connect back out again. Yeah. But also, you suddenly think, who who am I now? Mm. Who am I going to be? Mm. And I think you're absolutely right. You've got another mm. space to develop that side mm. again. You can remake it. You yes. know, if you've always been told you're not a creative yeah. person, then how do you know this new person might well be? That's a really important point. That yeah, that's something that yeah. It's and possibility. the welcome have explored that you know in, in some of the exhibitions of you know when people have been diagnosed. A lady who had you know breast cancer did a did mm. a piece of art. Yeah. Uh, around that and how how yeah. you know physical health or uh, changes might change you or change your, your your mental health and whether or not uh, um, you know health it does change us you know like you say like an experience um, not necessarily like a mental health problem physical health or you know um, yeah the capacity to remake yourself yeah. <laughs> it's just really interesting and use it as an idea isn't it <laughs> it's interesting as everyone's been speaking one of the kind of thoughts that came into my head was the bit about obviously the government at the moment is quite keen on teaching young people about mental health mm. uh, and I suppose that kind of bit about at the same time putting less money into teaching children about art and actually, would mm. the money be better spent teaching children about art as a way of kind of expressing and experiencing life, rather than just on the kind of what mental health is? I don't think kind of art and culture can ever kind of replace kind of statutory provision of kind of like good sound mental health care. Um, but that's not you know because I think very often you know things like mindfulness, kind of like art workshops, joining a choir, they're kind of they're quite cheap um, solutions to very kind of complex problems. So I'm saying, I would sort of like say not instead of, in addition to, certainly. Um, but I don't think kind of, yeah, art or kind of cultural activities can ever kind of like replace, um, you know, kind of <laughs> um, professional services. I have my kind of like suspicions when, when when governments start to kind of instrumentalize art and culture in that way. Yeah. I, I kind of get, I, get, I, get, I get a little bit worried. My kind of like a red flag starts yeah. going up. I kind of think, okay, well, maybe you know, you need to kind of like focus on kind of good 
free education. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a very interesting idea, isn't it? This idea about value. Something yeah. You did very well on your budget question, by the way. Yeah. I probably weren't expecting that. <laughs> so, so, fiscally speaking. Yeah. <laughs> but there's something around like how people attribute value to something, isn't mm. there? So mm. almost if you can't put a price on it, it's not... It's not a valuable thing, and that's mm. something I think that art really disputes. So I, I find that really exciting. So in terms of how you value, one of the things you said is no bad materials, and that's a really important way of just mm. absolutely honouring somebody's time and creativity mm. is to give them access to proper stuff. Can you tell us Unless a little bit more about that? Want to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, and then like found out or something. This, idea that yeah. this guy kind of like adds value to his work, you know, by tucking all his sketches in his socks. <laughs> Like keeping them all safe and kind of contained. So I mean, it's so uh, different strokes for different folks, isn't it? So this idea of you know, like value of who attributes value and how we recognise value. There are different ways of doing that, aren't there? There are most certainly different ways of doing it. Yeah. And I, I quite enjoy the idea of of actually having something which has a degree of quality because mm-hmm. the work that I want to produce needs to kind of uh, say something in a particular way. Uh, and I just, uh, out of choice, I just, uh, I've tried different things. So a lot of it is trial and error and what I want to do with, because uh, I'm using liquid. And uh, so the sort, sort of paper that I want to uh, use needs to be able to uh, deal with that. Mm-hmm. And I like, and I do, and I do like the, the, I do like something with a degree of quality. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do because the finished product, I think, will have a degree of quality. Uh, that's not to say that it's good or bad, you know. Um, but it's just it's just a personal choice, you know. For me, I'm just a little bit finicky about that. It's important, isn't it? It's important. It's a, to you know, mechanically speaking, it's important for your art to have a paper that can hold it. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and like Michaela was saying, like when you know when she's presenting somebody with you know a, a piece of paper, and it, it is good to have that uh, a degree of quality. It doesn't have to mm. you know really high grade paper. But it is, it's got a degree of quality with it and uh, mm. and that's also reflecting on, on maybe the, the sentiments that mm. Michaela might have within the other person mm. that, you know, you deserve this and, mm. uh, and that's, that's the quality of that relationship, you know, mm. that uh, uh, this is what I'm going to give you. And it speaks, doesn't it, because one of the things Dave was saying is the tactileness, mm. like wanting to reach out, wanting to connect with it. And the fact that, you know, the, you, as you were saying, you know, the fabric, that you're kind of cr- trying to create yeah, a fabric yeah. feel to it. There's something really material about it. And I think in a world where everything's sort of Instagram and pictures, pictures, it's, mm. it's really it's, amazing yeah. to have something you can actually have a physical encounter with, mm. a space that you can come into, something that you can actually agree, connect up to. Yeah. The podcast that we're doing is hopefully going to be consumed by people that work in the mental health nursing workforce, the mental health workforce in general. Have you got any advice for those people in terms of the, the worlds that you kind of inhabit, the work that you do? Have you got like a quick tip that you would give them in terms of what how they could do things better or anything? I, I think just kind of take advantage of um, working with professionals because kind of artists are professionals mm. <laughs> and people, you know, here we get the, the gallery of professionals with kind of, you know, many years of kind of experience of making work and showing work and talking about work. And I think very often in healthcare settings, there's a tendency to think about art as something that 
anybody can do and anybody can teach and you know which mm. to a certain extent going back to your initial question is everybody an artist yeah it, it, you know in, in certain perspectives yes in the sense that everybody is capable of kind of engaging with the creative aspect of themselves um but I remember when I first kind of arrived in the hospital you know you were always being asked to kind of either make a mosaic or, or kind of paint a mural on a wall or you know and I remember just saying gosh you know um, the status that's given to artists that they're expected to kind of muck in and kind of do things that are, they might not consider kind of like part of their practice or, <laughs> and I remember I had lots of kind of like conversations about kind of there are people with an you know, artists are people who have an expertise in their you know area so sometimes it's about going out and finding an artist to have that kind of conversation with rather than thinking oh kind of anybody will do you know <laughs> this idea oh you know maybe you know we can make the mural ourselves that's a different thing mm-hmm. um but there is a lot of kind of um nowadays more and more kind of art expertise within kind of healthcare settings um lots of kind of you know pr- um, creative producers artists um, professionals who are, would be more than willing to kind mm. of engage in those kinds of discussions. Mm. So in the same way that you, you perhaps wouldn't, you know, kind of, you, you go to a kind of a consultant psychiatrist or a kind of like a medical doctor for advice about kind of a medical condition, you know, maybe we should think about kind of ask, you know, consulting with professional artists if you want to kind of mm. um, facilitate those kinds of um, activities within a hospital. No, I think that's a, a really good top tip, isn't it? Find mm. a person who's an expert in art. Yeah, but also, and but also, yeah, yeah and pay them. But also, as an institution, so kind of, you know, there are you know outreach programs within all our kind of, you know, we're very fortunate here in kind of like London, but elsewhere, you know, across the UK, you, you know, there, there'll always be a department within, um, especially the major art galleries, which are tasked. Um, to kind of conduct outreach sessions with kind of um, healthcare workers, with student nurses, um, with different kind of community groups, with service users. So yeah, ask an expert would be my and and, and maybe kind of working partnership mm. with a, a museum or gallery um, to kind of get those kinds of that kind of professional input into. That's, that's two top tips. Oh, yeah. So well done. <laughs> well, I, rem- I, I went to uh, uh, the Dragon Cafe, and I, there's, mm. there's, it's a wonderful environment in the community where people who are, uh, uh, who are patients uh, who are now discharged and living living their lives in the community, uh, but occasionally have an opportunity to come together, meet together, and uh, uh, get involved in a, a wide variety of, of activities, social activities. Um, and sitting around the table, and, and, and what I noticed when I when I first uh, encountered the Dragon Cafe, about sitting around the table and people just doodling. There was crayons on the table and uh, felt tips, and people just uh, drawing. But it was like the conversation. So it was like I was saying, it's like people were able to have a cup of tea and just doodle. And while they were doodling, they were having these conversations, and it just it just it it, it helped to well as it's done for me, you know, relax me and be able to kind of use my art as a vehicle for like having a, a conversation while we're doing this, uh, we're having a little chit chat. But, and that was, that was great. That was, a, you know, uh, just a great, a great atmosphere, you know. And I've been in other environments where, you know, art has uh, been used as a, as a way of kind of bringing people together and, and helping people kind of 
develop their confidence and, and relationships with one another and to better understand some of the some of the difficulties that people have had with you know uh, mental health or you know any other difficulties that people have social difficulties you know mm-hmm. and I was just uh, so yeah I think I think to be honest honestly I think uh, every environment should have a, at least one space where people can just come together and just sit around and just uh, uh, move move paint around mm-hmm. and just have a have a chat about it because uh, you'd be surprised what comes of that you know. Mm-hmm. I think people generally kind of enjoy just you know having a chat and just and, and coloring and, and using using you know all these different mediums acrylics or whatever is available and uh, and having a chat and getting together and ex- you know exploring and experiencing one another. People listening to the podcast will want to now come and experience the gallery themselves. So if they're local to London or coming you know for a, a day trip how can they experience the gallery themselves? Please do come. Um, we're a bit of a schlep out of the town centre. Um, but in a beautiful setting. Though. In an absolutely beautiful setting. And uh, we're open um, Wednesday, Thursday and Fridays and the first and last Saturdays of the month. There are lots of kind of events and activities apart from the exhibitions going on both here in the gallery and in the Museum of the Mind. Um, from walks in the parkland in the in the in the guided tours, yeah. guided tours of the hospital park about the history runs. of the site park runs. Well, I was going to say because <laughs> I am an avid park runner. Oh, right. I, was, <laughs> I was slightly frustrated that I'd set this you know this chat on a Tuesday because <laughs> if I had been much better prepared, I would have done it for a Saturday after the park run. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah, did feel yeah, a bit yeah. like I've let myself. It's a very busy. <laughs> it's a very busy environment on a Saturday. It's you know people all over. You know, community coming together and having a, and the meeting that we've got a social space on the grounds, mm-hmm. and people come together and they have a chat, and the, while you know the member of the community and patients all come together, have a chat, a cup of tea, and just mingle to, you know, with one another, and it's great. Yeah, so well, well worth the trek out. Um, but the nearest station is Eden Park, which Eden is only Park. it's only mm-hmm. a twenty minute journey from well, London I'd, Bridge. I've had it in seventeen minutes today, Thank you. and I walked very slowly because <laughs> it was so hot. Yeah. So I'm sure anyone quicker could could get here much quicker. Mm-hmm. For those that can't make the trip, though, is there any way of people experiencing uh, the gallery, but not by coming online? Bethlehem online, isn't it? Yeah, we have the gallery sites online, yeah. yeah. Um, and also the Museum of the Mind. Um, many of the absolutely fascinating archives have also been digitised and are available online too. Brilliant. Well, uh, Michaela and Courtney, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks. I'm sure, you know, Nikki and myself agree that you've done a brilliant job. We have. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. <laughs> so we uh, really appreciate it. And hopefully we can now go and have a quick look around the gallery ourselves. Please yeah, do. I do, yeah. <laughs> So again, thanks to Courtney and Michaela from the Bethlehem Gallery. Hopefully you've found both segments interesting. I suppose it's we've just got a few minutes where myself and Stephen can maybe reflect on some of the issues that came out during the interview. I'd like to focus on the recovery aspect of what was talked about. And I think that Courtney's hesitation to make a bold or sort of a senseless claim that art equals recovery or art will necessarily help people recover is very respectable. I think we shouldn't be making claims like that because not everything will help everybody recover. The same things, people also don't, different triggers affect 
you know will will destabilize people and other things will different things will help people recover so I, I really responded well to that and it also sort of tied into what I mentioned in the editorial for the first of the specials where it's a little bit of a sort of utilitarian argument about definitions don't matter so much as long as at the end of the day somebody is helped which I think on a micro level is, is true I do believe that on a, like a more macro level then people do care about what is high art and what is low art and what is therapy and what isn't but if we're talking about individuals helping individuals then the fact that they are helped is what's important. The one thing I would say is that the problem with the recovery paradigm, and you can see that it's sort of, it's not a straightforward discussion in the interview either, is that recovery is not the only movement that happens in mental health. You know, re recovery implies that there was a period prior to the recovery that was a, a crisis or a sort of descending into problems, and then the recovery is coming out of those problems. But what about flourishing? Or what about just maintaining you know something that uh, aspects of your life that you want to maintain we shouldn't always have the conversation be about crisis it's unfortunate that services make us think of crisis that services are now almost synonymous with crisis that is what it feels like to work in those services it feels like they're crisis services but health is more than just about recovery and I think art has a or whatever cultural practice or cultural items we produce or consume has a role to play in flourishing as much as it does in recovering as it might do in just halting or stopping the worst aspects of of crisis or of distress so i think that's something to be mentioned and with nikki nikki's comments about you know when she's experienced grief is a nice illustration of the fact that there isn't this us and them it's not like art therapy is only for individuals who have found themselves in mental health services people can enjoy all sorts of things at different, all different times in their lives, in all different spaces. And what's nice about the two editions that we've put out is that it illustrates that these cultural practices, and just, if you want to call it creativity in general, is something that is a feature of life in general. And it, there are bridges between, and there should be similarities between life inside and outside of institutions. Because mm. otherwise we're just returning to institutions being places where people are excluded, and that's not what we want. So if there's value in art, maybe it's not just in the fact that it can help some people recover, but it's a bridge between life yeah, inside and outside of institutions, and it's a similarity, and it reminds us that we're all similar to some extent. We all like things. It's nice to just like things that you like. Mm, yeah. It doesn't have to be particularly profound. It's just people like stuff. That's good. It helps. That's good. Yeah. We don't, yeah. I, th I think one of the things for me, and I, I, was, I was a bit frustrated really, that I don't think I articulated the question very well, was the bit about kind of, in England, obviously the government's quite keen on kind of promoting and pushing a message about supporting young people with their own mental health, even though they've cut huge amounts from school budgets, kind of suggesting that they're going to put some money back in to support pupils directly with their own mental health but at the same time cutting other things like art budgets and actually that bit about are we at risk of missing the point by trying to focus on you know trying to educate children about the mental health directly or to to pull them out of uh, mental health problems or illness where we actually don't kind of create the nurturing environment that would stop them having those problems you know by you know investing in things mm. like art services and I think it's it's a, it's a it's a real issue that we miss in in this country at the moment with the debates that we're having, uh, and I think that's that's really unfortunate.
Thanks for listening along again today. Uh, please do share your feedback and thoughts on our first two episodes. Uh, we'd also love to hear about any thoughts that you've got for future episodes. Our next uh, edition, which is going to focus on Equally Well UK, uh, and that is again to link into a special edition that we've done of our Mental Health Nursing Journal. Because of our partnership with Equally Well UK, we've made that edition uh, free access to anyone uh, and there will be the information in the show notes about how you can get access to that for free. Uh, we've spoken quite a bit about the art specials of the journal. There'll also be details about how you can get hold of the two uh, editions that we did uh, focused on that. Do feedback to us via Twitter or email. Show notes, lots of information in there. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We're not committing to do a podcast every week or every two weeks or anything like that. So it's really important to be a subscriber, uh, either via SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn or Stitcher. Hopefully we'll be on more services soon. Because once you subscribe, you will get an alert every time a new episode goes live. We'll also obviously share the details on the MHNA Twitter feed and on our MHNA Facebook account. Thanks, Stephen, for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. And we look forward to speaking again (laughs) uh, episode three. Episode three. Yeah, look forward to it.